What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 118 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with investigative reporter and author Alexandra Robbins. Thanks so much for checking out the show this week. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to Adult Education. This show is all about learning new things or maybe diving deeper into some topics you're already familiar with. I speak with experts across all fields to learn more about health, education, technology, mental health, and really just about anything. If you'd like to support Adult Education, I would appreciate that. The best way to do it is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends because word of mouth is so such a great way to get new people to check out the show. I was really excited for this conversation because it hits close to home for me. My mom was a teacher and then became a paraeducator later in life. My wife is a middle school teacher, and I know so many people who have gotten into the education field. My heart has been breaking for them, especially over these last few years as parents and the media have militarized against educators. I remember people saying years ago that teaching was a thankless profession. I didn't really understand it at the time, but now I get it. Teachers are arguably the most important profession in this country, but they are treated as though they're on the bottom of the pile. It's really absurd. Investigative reporter and author Alexandra Robbins decided to dive into this topic in a new book called The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. This book was named one of the most anticipated of 2023 by a lot of different publications, and I totally get why. It's fantastic. Robbins interviewed tons of teachers for the project, but the book really focuses on three teachers from different places around the country. I like that she did that because teachers are not treated equally all over the country. There are different challenges depending on geographic location. One thing I loved about this book, too, is that you don't only feel for the teachers you hear from. Their stories will anger you, and they will drive you insane in a lot of ways. But you also start to feel for the kids. They're the innocent bystanders in this equation. While political groups and militant parents are trying to take over public schools and tear down education, the kids are the ones who are paying the price. Anyway, I've got an intimate knowledge of this topic, so I was ready to speak with Robbins. And at times, I felt like I was, well, I guess we both were, standing on our soapbox. I just hope the right people read this book or listen to this interview, and they make the changes necessary to keep our teachers happy and to keep our children learning. Here's my conversation with Alexandra Robbins. I'm good. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you. I uh, was just... Awesome. Opening my email, and uh, the latest email I have says, could your state survive a zombie apocalypse? And now I must know, could my state survive a zombie apocalypse? And <laughs> Maryland comes in at number 30. So number 30, we're not good, we're not bad, we're just right in the middle here in Maryland. Uh, well, we'll see what Governor Moore can do about it. He just started. Yeah, I'll give him some time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is great to talk to you, especially because I, I wouldn't say I have an intimate knowledge, but my wife is a middle school teacher. Um, so I do have a little bit of knowledge of how teaching works in this state. You have a lot of knowledge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I've been looking forward to this conversation because it's someone I can talk to outside of my wife and we can really have conversations about teaching in general. And I, I love hearing from her about what she likes and what she doesn't like and the ins and outs of what's going on. But obviously, she's in the throes of it so it feels different for her uh so I, I like to talk to someone who's maybe not quite as biased if you will so alexandra it's a pleasure to talk to you oh thanks for having me 
This book is really interesting, and I will admit my daughter just came down with something. My two-year-old came down with something, so I have not read it as much as I would have liked to going into this, but I still think we can have a great conversation about this. I, I want to know, though, your motivation to write the book, which is titled The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. Well, I, I wanted to write a fast-paced, sort of fun-to-read book that that both shows the public what's really going on inside schools and that also shows teachers that they are deeply appreciated, they're not alone, there is optimism, and people will fight to them. I, I really wanted the book to be the kind of thing that people could give teachers as a gift to signal that they support and appreciate teachers, especially now during one of the most difficult years in history to be a teacher, and, and now March during one of the hardest months. Yeah, I like the way that you put fun to read because there were moments I was reading your book and it's stuff that was kind of depressing in a way because you're like, man, teachers put up with all of this and this is what they deal with. But it was still enjoying enjoyable to read. Like I was, I found myself almost feeling guilty that I was finding enjoyment in some of the hardships that these teachers were facing. Well, you know, that's why instead of just writing how it is, I followed three teachers for a school year. So you really get immersed in their stories and go behind the scenes and understand their perspectives. And so it's like kind of like reading fiction. Um, there's Penny, who's a middle school mm -hmm. math teacher in the South, Miguel, a special ed teacher out West, and Rebecca, an East Coast elementary school teacher. Um, and they deal with different things that are both fascinating and relatable that, that also happen to make good stories. They they really they really did, and I I found myself my heart was breaking so much for Penny in so many different ways yeah. uh, during this story, and I I feel for teachers especially in the South because I, I think one thing that myself and my wife uh, can agree on is that in this Mid Atlantic region where we live or in the Northeast, even though there's still hardships, they education is put on a different pedestal here than it is in other parts of the country. So I really feel for teachers where education really isn't considered a premium. That's right. Some states uh, have more respect um, than others for teachers. However, even within Maryland, I think a lot of teachers will agree that they are not actually being treated um, sure. wonderfully by their district. Uh, even, in, you know, I talk to a lot of Maryland teachers and there's a heck of a lot of gaslighting going on um, from district officials, from school board members, from um, school district central offices. So yes, um, there are, Maryland is definitely in a, in a better spot than certain other pockets in the country, but it's still not good enough. Oh, sure. I mean, the grass is always greener, right? Like you can always find some place that's better than where you are, you know, but at the same time, that place is also facing similar but different hardships on their own. Right. We were talking right, about exactly. there was a possibility that my job was going to take us to North Carolina, which uh, from everything I've experienced so far in life is a beautiful state. And we were talking about that. We're like, can we make this move? What would be the financial compensation we need to make this move? My wife was like, well, there's no way in hell I'm going to become a teacher in North Carolina. She's like, I can't. Yeah. I just can't do it. Yeah, I did talk to teachers in North Carolina and, and, and in some districts, especially. It's a tough place to teach. When you were talking to teachers across the country, because I mean, you cover, you have three main characters, if you will, for this book, but you do talk to teachers across the board. How did people feel about unions? And I know that's a touchy subject for some folks, but I know in my wife's situation, they have a very strong union. And even though that union may not be perfect, that union fights for them and really works hard to get the teachers in their system, uh, you know, better pay and better situations as best they can. But I know unions are not everywhere when it comes to teaching. 
That's right. I think the hardest thing for a teacher is to feel like you're alone and you're powerless and you're voiceless. And while unions can't necessarily get everything that teachers need right now, it's not the union's fault. We're you know, they're up against tough districts and policymakers. Um, it is at least something to know that you're not alone and you have this group to help amplify your voice and fight for you. And that, that's really what, what we all should be doing. That's one of the points of the book. Yeah. Um, Districts and policymakers are more likely to listen to non-educators than to educators. So we non-educator allies, those of us who are not teachers, we need to be standing up for teachers, speaking out for them, showing up for them. I'm curious, and this might be a rhetorical question, but I'm 41 years old. And I remember when I was a kid, like you were taught to respect and almost in a way fear your teacher. I was a public school person. I didn't go. I, I don't have the stories of the uh, Catholic school getting slapped by nuns on the wrist with rulers kind of things. But like I still yeah. had teachers that you like respected and feared in a way. And it, I wonder when that switch happened to the point where kids no longer have that respect or that fear for the teacher uh, growing up. And it seems like they've lost that sort of like hold on the classroom in a way. Yeah, I think two two big things changed. One is uh, standardized testing, okay. high stakes standardized testing. Beginning in the early 2000s, politicians sort of created this climate of fear based on standardized test scores where everything became about how a student did on a particular test on a particular day, which is ridiculous. I am so against standardized tests. Yeah. They don't show anything. You know, they don't. So, and if students didn't score well, this is what started with no child left behind, teachers could be fired. So they're jobs or their pay could hinge on whether their students happen to be well-fed that day. Yeah. Did they get a good night's sleep? Are they homeless? Do they not have involved parents? Were they Are they frequently absent? And teachers uh, were paying the price for, for these standardized test scores. So that sort of started to change the environment and made it a lot more of a pressure cooker environment. And I think the other big thing that happened is online access. You've got social media, email, um, grades are now posted online, which just gives parents and students this sense that teachers are accessible at any time of the day to say anything they want to for them. There's this instant gratification idea. And I think those two things help contribute to the, the change. Going back to your standardized testing, the other question we have to ask is, is the kid an asshole? Because that was me growing up. Like I, I, <laughs> we had some standardized testing growing up. And once they told us that it didn't count towards our grades, I was like, well, then I don't care. Like That's it right. doesn't impact me. I'm going to sit here and, you know, ACAB, ACAB the entire way down the, the test. And, and when you're, you know, 15, 16 years old, you don't know, like you don't understand the repercussions that that's going to have on the teacher or the school itself. You know, looking back on it as an adult, I feel awful that I did that. I don't think the the same pressure was put on standardized testing in the mid to late nineties that it is now, but I, correct. I do yeah. feel, I feel bad that I, that I mailed it in, if you will, as a teenager on these tests that did not matter to me at the time. Right. That was before they started punishing teachers. So you're good. Like no, no guilt. Sure. You're good. <laughs> okay, good. I feel better um, about but, that. <laughs> but yeah, you, you're right. And also it's something else that districts don't really take into account when they, when they judge teachers by how their students do on, on a ridiculous test. Right, right. And I, I don't want to go down, you know, too far down a political rabbit hole, but it's kind of hard not to when you're talking about teaching and the education system, this concerted effort to sort of take over school boards in a lot of communities too is also fascinating and maddening at the same time. Like it just, it blows my mind how much effort 
people have been putting into this in a lot of ways to, to simply dismantle public schools as a whole. Yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to do. You know, you might hear, oh, gosh, you know, certain political factions are trying to destroy the public education system. And you're like, nah, that couldn't happen. But yes, that's what's going on. <laughs> There's this, um, you know, since 2021, hundreds of parents and community groups have formed to urge book bans of books featuring characters who are LGBTQ or characters of color or that include issues about race, gender identities or racism. And this aligns with the politicians who are pushing to censor these issues from teaching and classroom discussions. Um, politicians, you know, we see this in, uh, in our neighbor, Virginia. Uh, politicians sure. have galvanized parents uh, by packaging these measures as parents' rights. But they're not talking about all parents. They're only talking about some parents this, with these messages of exclusion and intolerance. I spoke with a woman from Virginia, and I, I won't say her name or the organization she works for, but she works for a charitable organization that brings books into schools. And I, I couldn't get a read on her where her political affiliations lie, but she felt compelled at one point to get involved with the school board. So she became, she ended up winning her election. She became a school board member. And she was talking, this was at the time when that last governor election was happening, and the governor of Virginia, the now governor, was just going on all these rants about education in the state. And she said she actually had to have police at her home 24 hours a day because she was getting death threats. I'm like, this is a school board member getting death threats from the community because of rhetoric that's being spit on uh, from, from politicians. It's so wild what the school board has become. Yeah, and it goes back to your your question earlier about, you know, what's changed between the 90s and now that that would not have happened in the 90s. The, the intensifying anti-teacher, anti-public school sentiment is, is insane, frankly. It makes this one of the most difficult times to, to be a teacher. You know, public schools are under fire. And and of the impact on teachers, some, some, some examples, um, there was a New Hampshire parent group that offered a bounty for anyone who caught a teacher talking about racism Ugh. or sexism in school. I mean, there was a Pennsylvania elected official, a state representative, who specifically told right-wing parents to become substitute teachers so that they could spy on other teachers. That's where this is going, and, and that's why uh, people really need to stand up for teachers right now. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. I, I have a friend, well, I, I don't know if I'd say a friend anymore, but an acquaintance that I used to be close with that kind of went down the QAnon rabbit hole, but he and his wife are are middle school teachers in California. And I always think to myself, if you are, if you're going in such a direction, I don't know how you can still be a teacher. Like, I don't know how you can get in front of the classroom and try to educate them on the real life things when where your head is at is not really in real life. Like, I just don't get it. I mean, I hope they're not teaching history or social studies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what subject they're teaching, but yeah, you're right. I was a sub for a little while. I remember when I was in college, I was a substitute teacher and it was amazing. It was great. Like it was pretty good money. I was always busy because teachers always needed help. And there was always a time when someone was going to be out for whatever reason they were out. I loved being a substitute teacher. And now you hear all the time about how substitutes, you, you can't find them. And the regular, the regular day-to-day -day teachers are being forced into those substitute roles uh, during their break times. And it's just, it's awful. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been a sub for four years now. And um, I mean, I can tell you one reason that there are not enough subs is because the pay is not so well, good. Sure. I mean, when I was doing it, it was 20, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, I mean, districts and school systems are not treating subbing like an actual job. So you, you can't live on it. There are no benefits there. They don't pay health insurance. So you know, you have to be a sub because you want to sure. do it, because you want to step in and help teachers and, and be with the kids. And it's super fun. If they if they made it a job that you could live on, I don't think they'd have a problem finding subs.
I remember talking to somebody a few years ago uh, doing one of these interviews, and we were talking about education here versus over in other countries, say in Europe. And one of the biggest differences that the, the person was describing to me is curriculum and how here in America, curriculum is all over the place. There isn't a national curriculum. They don't have one, which I think could be problematic to try to figure out just given the climate that we have. But in a yep. lot of countries over in Europe, they have a national curriculum. So teachers don't have to do the same prep and planning they do in America because because they already know what they're teaching the children when they walk in the door. Whereas here in America, like teachers are up all night long planning lessons and getting things ready because it changes year to year and they're moving classrooms year to year. And there isn't just the standard thing that everybody follows. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And that's taken up a lot of their, their summer vacations too. And that's where a lot of, you know, you say pay teachers more money and people are like, well, we don't have the money. You know what? We really do have the money. It's just that districts are using that money um, toward things like the shiniest newfangled curricula that they think will, will suddenly make this miraculous difference to their students. Well, no, a student's experience is not going to change by um, the latest testing program or the latest curriculum. It hinges on relationships with your teachers. Everyone has a teacher who is a game changer in some way, and that's where these resources need to go. How many of the teachers that you spoke with, <laughs> how many uh -oh. of the teachers that you spoke with uh, said outside of pay that their number one issue as a teacher was the parents? <laughs> you know, and we can talk about the parents. That's that's fine. I don't I think it's the overall sense of disrespect, not just sure. from parents, but from politicians and in the media. Um in terms of being a one of their top issues. I think there are other issues that they place above that. But I think probably the number one thing that surprised me during my research was the things that administrators and parents say to teachers. I mean, it can be it can be outrageous. I'll give you I'll give you a couple of Maryland sure. examples. Um, a Maryland administrator, this was last academic year, uh, a Maryland administrator said to his um, department teachers who are all female, uh, long-term subs are really hard to find. So I, you really need to not get really sick or get pregnant this year. Okay. okay whatever you say, boss. Sure. Uh, and then the parents back to the parents. Um, this isn't my worst example of parents, but it is Maryland. An upset Maryland mother complained to an elementary school music teacher about the school musical. I don't understand why that boy has 56 words and my son only has 43. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is what we're dealing with here. <laughs> Who's counting? That's what I want to know. Who's sitting there counting right. the words? She went to the script or whatever and she <laughs> counted the words. Come on. It's so interesting. I remember during the pandemic specifically, and that was a very different time, so I get it. But I mean, the the access parents expected to teachers was fascinating. My wife was pretty good. She was pregnant for most of 2020. Um, so she, you know, kind of, if you will, had an excuse uh, to shut down the email and not answer the text messages. But there were teachers that were up till 9, 10 o'clock at night having meetings with parents. And I was like, you've got to like draw the line somewhere. You have to, to close this down and, and just take some space for yourself. That's right. And I think parents forget that teachers have a lot of students. Yeah. I mean, they can have up to 30, 35 in elementary school, but in middle and high school, they can have 180 students. So even if a small fraction of those parents are trying to contact a teacher, a teacher has, I don't know, maybe a 20 minute lunch, maybe a 30 minute lunch period, maybe one 50 minute planning period during the school day. If their kids, if they're in elementary school, if their kids even have a special that day, they may not have a planning period that day at all. Um, so to have to respond to emails from from so many parents uh it, it it 
there's not enough time. I talked to a teacher in Utah who had 263 students one year. This was a high school English teacher. Okay, imagine trying to grade, correct, and refine the writing of 263 teenagers in 50 minutes during the day. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. I felt bad for a teacher that just had to go look at my writing as a teenager, let alone <laughs> 200 other students at the same time. Takes up the whole period just for you. <laughs> I still haven't figured it out after all these years. I had a teacher once tell me, I write like I talk. And I was like, oh. And he was like, that's not a good thing. I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> uh, There is a story that I'll tell you that my wife uh, my wife relayed to me. There was a fight off campus uh, over middle school at, at a local coffee shop um, and a bunch of kids got involved. It was, I guess it was pretty rough from what I understand. Well, the, the parents came to the school and were demanding action from the principal. And she was like, this happened off campus. Like, I, I don't know what you want me to do. I don't watch your kids 24 hours a day. They're not at school. Like there's only so much that we can do with what these kids do when they leave school grounds. Like I, you know, that's right. But people feel like school have become the safety net. That, that's what happened during the pandemic when when kids didn't have enough to eat. And it was during the pandemic. People were like, well, public schools need to feed them, even when the public schools were closed. Um, when uh, when we have school shootings, uh, the only thing that changed between the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre and the 2022 Rob massacre was that teachers were trained to hide their students and barricade their door. Right. Um, it's an example of teachers having to bear the weight and responsibility for society's failures. We expect teachers to step up and fill the gaps everywhere in students' lives. This is something I'm sure you heard from other teachers while you were putting this book together. Again, it's called The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. Uh, my wife will say this so nonchalantly, and it gives me chills because I don't think she really, maybe she doesn't understand what she's saying, but she will say, I fully expect to die in a school shooting. And I'm just like, I really like that? And you can say it so nonchalantly, like it's just, it is what it is. I mean, because nobody's doing anything. Sure. Nobody's doing anything to fix the situation. I know. It becomes so, uh, so very difficult. But you did mention something there about how people will look at school, like you mentioned the food, about how when the pandemic happened and kids were home, they realized, wow, public schools should be feeding my children. They don't necessarily fund the school to get the money to do that, but they believe right. it should happen. Uh, there is a report that came out this week um, that was talking about how about a quarter of parents admitted that they would lie about their child's COVID status to get them to go to school. And this was one of my wife's big bugaboos uh, because she would talk about how we're not babysitters. And if your kid's sick, like I know it sucks, like you have a job and you may not have paid time off, but if your kid's sick, like it's irresponsible and dangerous to send them to school. But meanwhile, the parents are like, the, the number one reason they said they did is just because it's my right as a parent to decide, to decide what to do with my kid. Like, but if your kid has COVID, you're sending them to a place where they could easily infect tons of other people that aren't looking for it, you know? Yeah, it's gross. And it happened all over the country. I mean, people were sending COVID positive kids to school, knowing they're COVID positive. But even before that, there was some study that said that seven in 10 parents knowingly send their kids to school sick. And what that shows is, number one, yes, school has become this safety net as babysitter slash childcare. But worse, there's this general just disrespect and disregard for the school staff. I mean, think about where, let's see, think about where the nurse's office usually is. It's usually near the main office or in the main office, right? So you've got the school secretaries, the administrators, the school nurse, you've got staff passing through there all the time. And meanwhile, you've got kids sitting there with a fever, with something contagious, with pink eye, you know, throwing up. And there's no, um, 
there's there's no sense from these parents that that they care about the well-being of the adults in that situation. You know, parents, teachers told me that parents will purposely give them the wrong contact information so that they can't be contacted <laughs> oh to pick gosh. up a kid from school. Um, parents will say like, well, I'm, I have a work meeting, so I'm not going to be able to get there for three hours. And meanwhile, this kid is sitting there infecting other people. Oh. There's just it's just common courtesy that's not happening. And you had a lot of teachers leave the profession because of this very example. And meanwhile, you've got parents that are mad because their kid isn't getting the same amount of attention because there's a teacher shortage, if you will. I know we can talk about that phrase uh, versus what the real issue is. But uh, but there were a lot of teachers that left for health reasons because they were like, I, I don't want to be in this situation anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think parents are they don't necessarily realize that so many people are like, oh, yeah, I love the teachers in my school. They're great. But then they don't do anything or speak out or lobby for teachers generally because they think, well, their kid is going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. Teachers are leaving the profession. You're going to see larger classes. You're going to see classes that don't have permanent teachers that just go from sub to sub to sub. You're going to see your kid's class combined with another kid's class sometimes because they don't have enough coverage. And, yeah, talking about teacher shortage, um, I don't use the phrase teacher shortage, but, yeah, that's the popularized phrase in the media. Um, because there, there is not a shortage of teachers. Yeah. There are plenty of potential qualified and aspiring teachers. What there is is a shortage of teaching jobs that adequately treat, protect, respect, and, con and, 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 and compensate skilled professionals so that they would want to be teachers in the first place and stay in the profession. Yeah, you see that phrase, uh, teacher shortage versus retention problem. Like there are teachers, there are many people that have big hearts, that have uh, that are really well-trained, that want to get out there and help kids, but where's the incentive for them to do it anymore? Exactly. And, and, and we can fix that, but we have to speak out. Teachers need higher pay. They need more support staff, more counselors, aides, paras, a nurse in every school. They need a job that can actually be managed during their paid contracted hours at school rather than one that bleeds into the night unpaid. I always think to myself as a part of the media, if you will, that I need to use my powers for good and not for evil. And I think that a lot of media should do the same thing. But uh, just again, to use an example of where I live, I live in Baltimore City. And I know this is my favorite example. I think you'll get a kick out of this. This commercial aired in early 2021. So the pandemic had been around for about a year at this point. And the commercial was from the local Fox affiliate here in Baltimore. And there it was one of those, you know, scary commercials like, are your kids safe in the dark and but it would but they were saying like seventh graders reading at a first grade level due to the pandemic and i was like wait a second the pandemic's been around for a year if these kids are reading at a first grade level something failed them a long time ago maybe use your ability to get this message out to make some real change and not just scare people about it yeah, there's too many scare taxes, scare tactics and, and, and clickbait going on with the media. It is hard to get the media to do teacher appreciation pieces. Uh, I, I guess I don't know why, actually. And I mean, thank, thank you for talking about the, this, this issue today, because teachers need to hear the media speaking up in favor of them. Um, there was a survey a few years ago that said 55 percent of teachers said that one of the major stressors was negative portrayals of teachers in the media. I mean, yeah. there's just no reason to do that. I know when you think about that, when you hear politicians kind of ripping teachers apart and, and portraying them negatively, like you just mentioned, you got to think to yourself, like these people are not getting adequately paid. They're putting in way longer hours than a lot of other jobs that are out there. Why would they be the evil people? 
<laughs> yeah, why why would we trust them with uh, our most precious asset? I mean, we trust them with our children. And then not only do we not give them what they need to best educate our children, but but we then, you know, rag on them. It doesn't make any sense. So the myth of teacher burnout, I've seen that pop up a little bit here. Let's talk about that. So teacher burnout is is such a popular phrase that in uh, the dictionary, in Merriam-Webster dictionary, the, the uh, two featured contextual examples of burnout both mention teachers. That's how popular <laughs> it is. Of course they do. And it's a phrase, yeah, it, distri- it describes stress or exhaustion from overwork. But I think it's misleading. I think it's a myth. I think those feelings that teachers are having are valid, but that it's not their fault. Experts say teacher burnout is called by is caused by inadequate work, workplace support and resources, unmanageable workload, and high stakes testing, things like that. But instead of fixing these issues, like normal workplaces would seek to do, school systems put it on the teachers. They say, "Well, we're doing those things anyway, so the teacher should just do a better job of." And you can't see me, but I'm air quoting here: self care, as if the burden is on teachers to go get a massage or meditate or something to alleviate the stress caused by a job that's impossible to do during the school day. So to me, the phrase teacher burnout blames teachers for not being able to cope sure. rather than faulting school systems that's, that set teachers up to fail. So instead of saying, as academic studies do, teachers have the highest burnout levels, I think we should instead be saying, nope, school systems are the employer's worst at providing employees with necessary supports and resources. That's a very good way to look at it. And I've never thought of it from that perspective. And I think I'm going to have to I'll have to dive into that conversation with my wife to see what she thinks about that too, because that that is so interesting to look at it that way. Because the teachers have been they've been told they've been brought into this conversation for so long that it's their fault, and it really right. isn't. Like it's a systemic problem. Exactly, and the teacher blaming narrative has 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 trickled toward parents too. Their teachers are blamed for everything. I'm going to show you with you a, a quick true story Please. that sort of encapsulates the teacher blaming narrative for me. Um, this is true. One day after school, a Pennsylvania high school English teacher was walking to her car in the parking lot after dismissal when a Mercedes rolled right into her. It hit her. Now she was fine. Luckily, she was not injured. She sort of jumped back in surprise. But the mom driver who was still on her cell phone lowered her window and yelled, stop touching my car. So to (laughs) me, the incident illustrates this culture of teacher blaming in which entitled parents make insane demands and then fault teachers for not meeting them. They're driving their car into a teacher and then blaming the teacher for touching it. Oh my gosh. And you know, and I, I know we've talked about parents here and I, I do want to say for whatever reason, not all parents are bad and we're not trying to demonize no, all right. parents. There are some parents that are trying so hard to get their kids the the care and the education that they need um, that it, like sometimes maybe they come across as overbearing, but they're just trying to make sure their kids are learning. And then you've got the parents like that, that are driving the car that just could not care about anything yeah. else but their own situation. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's hard to be a parent too. In a lot of these situations, I know uh, in your book, you talk about IEPs, which is something that I've been learning a lot about. My wife is an interventionist. Uh, She's a reading interventionist. So she works with kids that are already far behind uh, in reading, which she told me, and this is something interesting I didn't realize, uh, and I believe the number is two, but she told me that kids in Maryland have to be two years behind in reading before they will be offered support which I think is so oh, mind blowing. Like I, I now don't quote me. I think it's two years, but it's fascinating that you have to wait that long to get the help. Cause at that point you're already behind. Like, and, 
when you're a kid, like she works with middle school kids, that's when you start to get embarrassed about things. That's when you start to be concerned about what people are thinking about you. If you're behind, like you've got a host of other things you're thinking about that are going to stop you from even wanting to get better. Yeah. And it's going to mess with your esteem and motivation yes. too. You're going to kind of, especially since you're labeling, labeling yourself and everyone else is labeling you, especially in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. That's the point where if you're already two years behind in reading, you're going to be saying to yourself, oh, I'm just not a good reader. Right. You're going right. to give up and accept that. Well, Alexander Robbins, I, I know that we uh, have uh, just a couple minutes left here, but I just want to make sure I thank you so much for this. Is there a place that people can go if they want to follow along with you or find out more about this book? Oh, sure. You, you can get the book at, at any place that, that sells books. Um, there's more about the book at my website, with, which is alexandrarobbins.com. Alexandra, the book is called The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. I cannot wait to finish this book. What I've read through so far is just so fascinating. It makes you angry. It makes you cry. It makes you smile. There's just so much to this book. I hope people pick it up. I hope they check it out. And I hope they show some love for their teachers. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Big thank you to Alexandra Robbins for her time. I know she's a very busy woman, and I appreciate having her on the show. Her book, The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession, is available now wherever you get your books. Uh, do me a favor today. Can you just thank a teacher? Doesn't matter who it is. Just thank a teacher. And thank you to all of you for listening to Adult Education. Until next week, be well.